0: Now, one of the things that is interesting as you work through any of the Gospels is that you see that there are times when Jesus comforts the afflicted. And these are beautiful moments when he draws near to those who are grieving or sorrowful or have heavy burdens, and he comes and he lifts those, and he recenters them upon himself. But just like there are times when Jesus comforts the afflicted, there are also times when Jesus afflicts the comfortable. There are times when he says some really challenging things. Sometimes when he says things that just we wish he wouldn't say, they step on our toes and they make us uncomfortable. And Jesus isn't just trying to be provocative. What he's trying to do is to reorient people's thinking, to, to recenter their lives upon him and the good news of the kingdom that is coming. And so we're going to look at one of those passages today where Jesus is afflicting the comfortable. And we're going to call our study today, The Coming Great Reversal. As we've seen from the reading, there's a lot that's going on in this text, and we're going to work our way through it this morning. But let's pause and just ask the Lord to be with us, to teach us, that he would show us what we need to take away from this message today. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have the privilege of opening the scriptures to hear about the life of Jesus and about your glorious grace that we sung about earlier. We thank you that we have come to a place today by your providence to to hear and to study this section from the life of Jesus. Would you meet us where we are today? Whether we are those who are uh, feeling afflicted... (laughs) or whether we are those who are comfortable. Recenter our lives upon you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the challenges of studying a section of Scripture like we do each week is that sometimes the passages we look at are happening within a very short time. But we might be spending the course of a month looking at them together, so we forget kind of the flow of what's happening. The passage we're going to look at today takes place at the same dinner party in which Sinners were drawing near to Jesus, and the religious leaders grumble and say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They think any self-respecting man of God wouldn't be caught dead in the company of these misfits and these outcasts and these marginalized people, folks that they write off as quote-unquote sinners. And so Jesus uses this as an opportunity to start telling stories. And we have some amazing stories in chapter 15 and chapter 16. Remember, we've talked about the story of the lost sheep and of the lost coin and how when those were found, those people who had lost them called all their friends together to celebrate. And then Jesus goes into the story of the the lost sons, the story of the prodigal son, and he talks about great joy and rejoicing in God's presence when someone returns to him. And we saw how Jesus went from there and talked about the parable of the dishonest manager. And he encouraged his disciples to use shrewdness, just like that dishonest manager did, to make friends for eternity. So we're in that same dinner party, that same course of thought. So all that stuff that I just rehearsed right there takes place in probably the span of about 10 minutes. And then this is where the, the text brings us. The context, just a moment here. Jesus, right before this passage we're going to look at, says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So last week, we brought that phrase forward and looked at that, and we we intersected our lives with it, and we asked the question, Do we believe that we can serve God and money? Jesus says you can't. One of those will have a greater grip on your life. In fact, he goes so far as to say you'll despise one while you're devoted to the other. And then, right when he finished saying that, the Pharisees were told, those religious leaders, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. They mocked him. They laughed at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, where we came to last week was this central truth Jesus is inviting us to be the kind of people who use our resources to populate his kingdom by making friends who will joyfully welcome us there. That's where we are. And then the next thing out of Jesus' mouth is another parable. He's going to use a negative example of someone who didn't use their wealth to make friends for eternity. And this is what Jesus said. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So Jesus introduces us to a man who has it all. He has lots of money. He's rich. He wears the finest clothes. Only the very wealthy in those days wore purple, and fine linen. Those were reserved really basically for kings. But here's a man who has that kind of wealth. And we're told that he feasted sumptuously every day. It's interesting the way several different translations translate that last phrase. The New International Version says that he lived in luxury every day. The New American Standard Bible says he uh, joyously Uh, was living in splendor every day. And then the Christian Standard Bible, he was feasting lavishly every day. So get in your picture, get in your mind this picture of a wealthy person who, what we might say, is living high on the hog. (laughs) He's living the good life. He's living large. All right? This is the man that Jesus wants to introduce us to. And we're told in verse 19... At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So next to the rich man who was clothed to the nines, who feasted sumptuously, Jesus wants to have in our mind another man who was laid outside his gate, who just longed to eat of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Those scraps, we know from the way these meals were, were likely bread that they used for napkins. They didn't have napkins like we do. So they would take pieces of bread, and they would wipe their mouth and wipe their hands, and then they throw it down on the ground. Servants would pick it up, or maybe a little mouse would find it or something like that. But here's this poor man who just longs to be able to eat what's thrown on the ground. And we're told that he's covered with sores. He has it bad. So that even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now in this picture that we have up before us, there's some dogs and they look quite friendly. (laughs) might want to scratch their head or something like that. But that's not the kind of dogs that were around at this point. Jesus is talking about what everyone knew as scavenger dogs. We lived in Peru for a couple years, and there are these wild dogs all over the place. These were the kind of animals that were coming to him, licking his sores. And here's this poor man that was laid outside the gate. He couldn't even bring himself there, laid outside the gate, just hoping the rich man would have mercy upon him. Jesus continues the story we're told that the poor man died. What a sad ending to a sad life. What was a tragedy now comes to an end. But that's not the end of this man's story. Jesus told us the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. What a curious phrase, Abraham's side. Why does Jesus describe the next life the world to come, paradise, as Abraham's side. Well, remember, Abraham was the father of the people of Israel. He was the one that God came to and set apart, entered into a covenant of grace with him, who through Abraham and his people wanted to bless the world. And so, since God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the fathers, not that he was, they're still living. And so, Jesus uses Abraham's side as just a catchphrase for the world to come. Yes, this man's sad and miserable life, full of sorrow and grief, comes to an end. But now, he is in paradise, at Abraham's side. And we're told that the rich man also died and was buried. Here's an unfortunate ending to a man who had it all. He too died, and he was buried. Would he be at Abraham's side? We're told in verse 23 that he was in Hades, being in torment. He lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. What does this word Hades mean? Sometimes there's a translation of this word to mean hell, but that's not the word that Jesus actually uses here. The word Hades simply means the place of the dead. Jesus is telling a story here, and there's lots of debate about exactly how are we to understand this? Is this a literal geography or what? But for the time, let's just understand that what Jesus is presenting to us right now is a great reversal. This rich man who had it all finds himself among the dead. Looking at far off, he's separated from Abraham, he's separated from Lazarus, and he's all by himself. Lazarus, who had it bad, now has it really good. He is in paradise. And then we're told, in verse 24, that he called out, this is the rich man, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And what do you think about this statement. To me, there's a certain audacity in what he says here. This man Jesus wants us to see couldn't be bothered to even give the poor man Lazarus scraps from his table. He he couldn't be bothered in the midst of managing his wealth and his, his transactions and his investments to have mercy upon Lazarus And now, in this great reversal, this man who had no mercy now wants mercy himself. And moreover, he doesn't understand that things have now changed. The way things were in the the old world, in this present life, where the poor serve the rich, now, in this new life, he doesn't get it. In this place of separation from paradise, He wants the people like Lazarus to come and serve him once again. And it's interesting, this rich man who had all the money that he could spend now cannot even buy a cup of water. And so he doesn't request that he might come to paradise, but what he requests is that Abraham would send Lazarus to Hades where he is. In other words, he wants to to drag Lazarus this man he had no compassion for, this man he had no mercy for, down to Hades with him. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Abraham addresses this man as child. Some translations put it as a son. He was in the family of Abraham. He was an heir to all the good things that God promised his people. He was supposed to be a blessing to others, just like Abraham was. So Abraham addresses him as a child. But this child is not with Abraham. He's looking at him from a distance, and Abraham simply pushes pushes this verdict before him. Remember that in your lifetime, you received good things. by implication, you spent those good things on yourself. Lazarus, in like manner, received bad things. In the mysterious providence of God, you were blessed, and he was hurting. But now he's comforted. But now, see those words, but now. There's a great reversal that's taken place. Lazarus, this poor man, now is comforted for eternity in the presence of God. But now this rich man is in anguish. His money does him no good. As Jesus said in the passage we looked at earlier, his wealth has now failed him. And then in verse 26, Abraham says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. In this story, Jesus tells about a great reversal. He says that there's a a fixed chasm, so that there can be no crossing. And I wish we had time to go into this. Um, If we had a category to think of kind of the geography of how the scriptures present the world to come as, it speaks of it as the new Jerusalem, a new heavens and new earth. And Jerusalem is the city of Shalom, the city of God's peace, and outside are banished. Those who had no peace, who, who made war, who lived selfishly. So now there's this great chasm, and Hades cannot invade the kingdom of God. All that's destructive, all that's selfish, has now been quarantined. And then in verse 27, we're told that the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, To send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they come to this place of torment. This might seem like a a reasonable request, right? (laughs) He's thinking of his family. But as I reflected on this, I detected a subtle accusation. The rich man is now in this place of torment because it wasn't clear enough to him that this is where he might end up. If Lazarus had come back from the dead to warn him, then he would have repented. And so send Lazarus to my family, that they too might repent. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What an interesting response. They have exactly what the rich man in his life had. They had... Moses and the prophets. What's going on with that phrase? Well, just think of what Moses did in writing the first five books of the Old Testament for us, the Torah. He told us about this man that Abraham called and established his covenant of grace. Genesis chapter twelve. The Lord said, "I will make, said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, and indeed." Uh, and 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 in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, God called Abraham and his descendants into being, into existence, and blessed them. Why? So that they would be a blessing to others. The rich man and his rich family knows exactly why they've been blessed, to bless others. But instead, they're just blessing themselves. That same Moses tells us about those people that are very close to God's heart. We've talked about this before. as the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. These people who are especially vulnerable in this world. And God gives instructions on how to treat them, how, how to help them out. So they have the testimony of Moses, but they're not listening to him. But there's also the testimony of the prophets. And I could have pulled out a thousand different verses But let me just pull out one from the book of Amos. Amos was sent to a very wayward people of God. And he said to them, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Then he says, therefore, because you trample the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. To put it in the words of what Jesus reminded us of last week, their wealth will fail them. And then he goes on and says, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. The rich man had the testimony of Amos who called people to repent for turning aside the needy at the gate. And yet for how many days and weeks and months and maybe even years had Lazarus been laid at his gate? And he didn't give them, give him a drop of water or a crumb from his table. And then he goes on and he says this, Amos. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Amos and other prophets talked about this coming day where there would be a great reversal... And the way that Israel interpreted that is that they would end up on top. And everybody else would be subjugated around them. And so Amos says, why do you want the day of the Lord to come? Why are you looking forward to that great reversal? It is darkness and not light. And then God says to this prophet, take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. These were the people of God who would, who would sing praises to God. They would find themselves in the assembly singing praises. That's what they would do at special times. But they exploited the poor. They turned aside the needy in the gate. And then God says through this prophet, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting, every flowing stream. What God doesn't want from these people is the praises. What he wants is for them to to pursue righteousness, to love mercy to help set this world to right. And so Abraham says to this rich man, you had Moses and the prophets, and your family has Moses Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In verse 30, the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Again, the subtle accusation. If someone had come from the dead to remind me, To tell me, I would have repented. And Abraham said in verse 31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What an interesting statement. He says it has nothing to do with what they could hear or what they could see. It has everything to do with the hardness of their hearts. Just like wealth hardened your hearts to those around you, so it has hardened the hearts of your family, to those around them. And so even if someone came back from the dead, it wouldn't change their mind. And if you can re- remember the things that Jesus did, oh, the irony. Here's a story he told about a poor, name, a poor man named Lazarus. And yet we're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who died. I'm not saying they're the same people. But Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who died. And instead of immediately going to him, he he delayed for four days. And when he finally arrived, one of his friends comes out to him and her name was Martha. And she said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She had seen Jesus perform miracles to comfort the afflicted, to bring the healing of the kingdom into their lives. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? The Jews believed there would be a resurrection to come and God would bring it about. And Jesus makes this claim that he is the resurrection. He is life. And to prove it in this moment, Jesus called the people to move away the stone from this tomb in which Lazarus had been laid. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And his body reanimated. And he came out. And Jesus, to the wonderment of all the people around him, began celebrating with them as he brought back someone from the dead. Would that change people's hearts? We're told that the religious leaders, in response to this miracle that Jesus just performed in bringing someone back from the dead, said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So from that day on... They made plans to put him to death. In the story Jesus tells, the rich man says, Send someone back from the dead. And interestingly enough, Jesus brought someone back from the dead named Lazarus. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, Do you believe me now? And the religious leaders are saying, No, we don't. We're actually going to put you to death. The hardness of heart of these people who loved money and yet gave lip service to God. (laughs) Of course, the amazing thing, even more so than the resurrection of Lazarus, was the resurrection of Jesus himself, who said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I will raise it up again. And so Jesus conquered the grave himself. He came back from the dead. Do you believe me now? The Apostle Paul, who was one of the Pharisees who despised Jesus, nevertheless met the resurrected Jesus as was converted on the spot, and Jesus gave him grace upon grace and said, you know what, I want to use you, Paul, as my ambassador to the Roman Empire. And so one of the places that Paul found himself was in Rome, in Athens. He was in Athens, speaking to the philosophers of the day. And he told them this the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What the rich man asked for, God did in spades by raising Jesus from the dead. And God has overlooked ignorance in the past. He's overlooked excuses in the past. Yes, people had Moses. Yes, people had the prophets. But now with the resurrection of Jesus, back from the dead, he calls everyone to repent. Everyone everywhere to repent. What that means is, no matter what your background, no matter what you believe, God is summoning you to repent in light of the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead and has appointed him as the coming judge of this world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, his enthronement to the right hand of God, makes everyone's appointment book certain in the future. You and I will stand before Jesus to give an account of our life. So let me boil down our study so far to this one sentence. The coming of God's kingdom means a great reversal is coming. The reason why Jesus is hanging out with these misfits, with these outcasts, with the marginalized, with the despised tax collectors and the the sinners is because he wants to bring more and more people into his glorious kingdom. And when that kingdom comes, (laughs) the coming of God's kingdom means a great reversal is coming. So, three points of application, my friends. First of all, this might seem rather obvious, but let's remember that the great reversal is coming. When God's kingdom comes in all its glory, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, this world will be turned upside down. And everything that is highly valued in this world as Jesus said, is an abomination in the sight of God. And there will be a a great reversal. God will set this world to right. Jesus called it the, the renewal of all things, this coming kingdom of God. So let's remember that the great reversal is coming. Our wealth will one day fail us, and we will stand before God. Jesus, in another place, asked the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and forfeit his soul. According to Jesus, it's possible, and maybe even likely, for people like you and me to accumulate wealth, (laughs) to gain the whole world, to have more money than we can spend. We can always spend more and more, yes. But we have our basic needs covered. What does it profit if you and I gain everything we want And yet we forfeit our soul just like the rich man in the story of Jesus did. There's a great book by John Grisham called The Testament. I don't know if you've read it or not. But it opens up in a very exciting way. There's this elderly billionaire who um, rewrites his will. And he excludes all his children that he despises. He just sees them as, as greedy folks who don't care anything about him. They just want his money which is probably a reasonable response because he really didn't care anything about film either. But now he finds himself at the end of his life, and the will is read when he passes, and the children find out that all of them have been excluded. And all the money is given to this one daughter that no one knew that he had, an illegitimate daughter. And so the attorney, there's always an attorney in a John Grisham novel, is tasked with finding this daughter. And eventually he tracks her down. She is in the jungles of Brazil serving as a missionary serving people, ministering to the poor. And he comes to her and says, you've been, you've been given billions of dollars. It's yours to do with whatever you want. And she says, I don't want it. <laughs> you and I are like, what? <laughs> I'll take it if you don't want it. She says she doesn't want it. And he, the, the lawyer's just flabbergasted at this response. And, and this is what she says to him. You worship money. You're part of a culture where everything is measured by money. It's a religion. Remember what Jesus says? You cannot serve God and money. One will take control of your life. You will love one and and, and despise the other. (laughs) Here this orphan, or not orphan, illegitimate daughter I probably should say says she doesn't want the money. You people who love money, it's a religion. The rich man in Jesus' story had his wealth, and whatever he said, he believed about God, wealth was his religion. Jesus himself said, you cannot serve God and money. So let's do something fun real fast. There's a website called givingwhatwecan.org, and you can go to this website, and you can punch in how much money you make. And so in this section here, um, this screenshot, I punched in 35... $1,000. And if you make $35,000, it tells you that you are in the richest 3.5% of the global population. Your income is more than 12.4 times the global median. 35,000. I bumped it up a little bit to 50,000. If you make $50,000, you are in the richest 1.5% of the global population. Your income is seventeen point seven times the global median. Fifty thousand. Let's do one more. A hundred thousand. If you make a hundred thousand dollars, you're in the richest one percent of the global population. Your income is more than thirty-five point four times the median wealth of a person in this world. I highlight this, my friends, because we are among the wealthiest people in the world. And when Jesus says you cannot serve God in money, we need to ask ourselves hard questions. We need to hear a story like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and ask ourselves the question, what do we do with our resources? Jesus tells us what we should do. (laughs) He just told us in the previous section we looked at. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. The rich man didn't make friends with Lazarus, who died before him. And Lazarus wasn't there when the rich man went to Hades to welcome him to eternal life. There's another place in the Gospels where Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I can only imagine the expressions on the face of these religious people, these leaders, who loved money. To be told by Jesus they are in danger of finding themselves outside the coming kingdom of God. Here's the second point of application. Let's remember the gospel <laughs> We've got to remember the gospel. We're told that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, the king of heaven, left heaven, came to earth, lived among the poor, died penniless among the poor, all so that we could become rich. It's not a name-it-and-claim-it wealth-and-health gospel kind of thing. He's talking about spiritual wealth, being made like Jesus, being given the privilege of being joint heirs with Jesus as he becomes the heir of all things in this world. The gospel has to change our hearts. So, just like Jesus made himself more poor for people like us so that we can become rich, we're called to do the same thing. Do you see that? Let me tell you about a friend of mine named Pete. This is when I lived in Calgary, and we had a Good Friday service, and he was was overwhelmed at the thought that Christ would die for him, that the one that was rich became poor, so that for his sake he might become rich. And so instead of going that day after the service and spending it with his family, he told him that he had to go downtown. And what my friend Pete did was he went and he found some homeless folks. And he took them to a restaurant and bought them food. When he told me about this, I was like, what, how, how did this happen? He's like, you know, I was just moved and overwhelmed by how much i have been given by God that I just wanted to go and make a friend. And I said, well, how'd you do that? He said, I just went up to them and, and said, I'm Pete, can I buy you dinner? And I said, what'd y'all talk about? And we sat there over... Warm cup and coffee, he said, some good food. And I just said, Tell me your story. That's just a tiny example of how we might use our wealth to make friends for eternity. And I think about my friend Pete, over and over again, he did things like this. He's this big guy, and he goes to punk concerts every week in Calgary and hangs around with people who are dressed in all black, like I am today, <clears throat> listening to, to music that just grates on my nerves. And he does that because he's, he's making friends for eternity. He's known as the, the punk daddy in these venues. And he's made friends, he's shared the gospel, he's seen people come to Christ, And I can just imagine God and the saints welcoming him into his eternal dwelling by saying, well done. Jeremy Treat, in his book, Seek First, helps crystallize for us what we're getting at. He says, the gospel creates a people who seek mercy and justice. Why? Because the gospel gives us eyes to see others the way God does and gives new hearts The gospel gets to the heart, drawing us to God and into God's mission. The more we understand the gospel, he says, the more we are drawn into Christ's heart for the oppressed and the hurting. Throughout scripture, we see that a true encounter with grace, with the grace of God, leads to a sacrificial heart for the marginalized and the oppressed. The rich man didn't have an encounter with God, no matter what he said he believed. And therefore, he didn't have a heart for the poor around him. But a true encounter with the grace of God turns us into those kinds of people who do have a heart for the marginalized and oppressed, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, the poor. So our first point of application was this. Let's remember that the great reversal is coming. The second point of application was, let's remember the gospel. And here's the third. My friends, let's remember the poor. The Apostle Paul, this one-time Pharisee, who presided over the first execution of a Christian. As I told you a while ago, himself became a Christian. And this man who was once persecuting the faith now became its greatest proclaimer. And he had a time when he met with the other apostles, these disciples who had followed Jesus. And they got together, and they heard about the grace of God that had been given to Paul. And so they developed a plan on how they would advance the gospel in this world. And so they're all going to different places. They're going to send Paul to the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire... And one of the things they said to him was this. Only they, this is what Paul's saying, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul, go out and preach the gospel of Jesus. Tell people about the good news of forgiveness of sins in this coming kingdom. Tell them all about that. But also remember the poor. And Paul's like, of course. That's the very thing I'm eager to do. He's the one who wrote those words we looked at just a few moments ago. You know the grace of God, of Christ, that that though he was rich, he became poor so that in Christ we might become rich. Paul knows. And he wants to remember the poor. And so here's the question. This is where it's all leading up to, my friends. We are blessed to be a blessing. Those of us who who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who say that we we are Christians, we have been blessed to be a blessing. Here's the question. Is there any evidence in my life that I'm eager to remember the poor? My friends, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. I didn't get it, get it until I was in my 40s that part of being a Christian is to have Christ's heart for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. I didn't get that this was a requirement in following Jesus. It's not an elective. This is part and parcel of what it means to be bearers of the good news. We proclaim it in word, yes. And we also demonstrate it in deeds to the poor. When I was preparing this, I put this slide up there and, think, and I was thinking about it. I came up with all these objections of why, you know, poor might just waste it if I gave it to them. Or, you know, why don't they go get a job? Or, and I started having all these objections come up. And then those words of Jesus came into my mind. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Leslie Newbigin, Newbigin the, the famous missionary to India, said, it is a terrible misunderstanding of the gospel to think that it offers us a salvation while relieving us of responsibility for the life of the world, for the sin and sorrow and pain which our human life and that of our fellow men and women are so deeply interwoven. Just a word from John, one of the best friends of Jesus. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? My friends, I know that we don't have homeless folks on every corner but sometimes we do in this city. And sometimes the sign says, please help, or no job, we'll work for food. Let me challenge you to begin changing your thinking about what you see there and see these signs as really saying something like this, seeking human kindness. I know there's more poverty out there than we can make a dent in, but that's not an excuse. When we see someone created in the image of God, someone like Lazarus who needs help, do we close our hearts or do we take what we have to minister to them? So here's the question. Do you have a give to the poor fund? (laughs) Maybe you have a line item in your budget, which is for charity, and that's a good thing. I've been to some of your houses, and I've seen pictures on your refrigerator of, of kids in third-world countries that you're helping support. And I say, do that more and more. I've seen you help out at the local food pantry and to, to give and to serve. And let me just encourage you to do that more and more. I've seen how you've invested in human trafficking organizations that fight that, who help those who are most vulnerable. Let me encourage you to do that more and more. But let me ask you the question. Can you be intentional in doing it more and more? You and I, for the most part, don't have poor folks who are hurting late at the door of our house. We can craft our lives to not even see that. But we know that they're. There. How does the gospel change our hearts? So, do you have a, a Give to the Poor fund? If not, let me encourage you to do it. Maybe you're a poor college student. You can just give like three or four bucks a month to something. Can you do that? Does the the gospel and the the grace that you've received make you want to reach out to help those who are most vulnerable and helpless in our society? Listen to what the book of Proverbs says. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. Have you seen this verse before? (laughs) Whoever is generous to the poor. lends or gives to the Lord. And God himself will repay you. Or how about this from Psalm 41? Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The rich man in the story of Jesus didn't consider the poor. When his riches failed, in his day of trouble, he was not delivered. And why would he go to paradise? He wouldn't find that home. Paradise is where love, other-centered love flourishes. And he doesn't have that. He would be miserable there. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. So Mercy Hill Church, may you live in light of both the cross and the coming great reversal.